Let's turn to 1 Peter, the first chapter. And we're going to read a text there again. I began speaking in September on the basics and using 1 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 2 as a text. And we talked the last time about the first word of that verse, which is elect. So we want to read that whole verse again. Peter is addressing the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. And very briefly, it's been about a month ago, but if you'll recall, we only took up that word the last time, which is the word elect, which means to select or to be chosen. And if you recall, I pulled some definitions from the Webster's 1828, one of which was in theological terms, elect means to choose as an object of mercy and favor. We looked in the scripture at where the word elect occurs, and it really basically only occurs uh, in four areas. And that is in reference to God's children, the, the elect, the children of God are referred to as the elect of God. It's also, it also refers to the nation of Israel, which was the chosen nation of God. And it refers specifically to Christ. That's a term that he is, that the scripture gives him. He is the elect, the chosen one of God. And then there is a reference, one reference to the fact that elect are referring to certain angels. It speaks of the elect angels. That's a subject for another day. But primarily it refers to God's people, to the nation of Israel, and to Christ himself. Uh, and you, you've heard me say this many times. If, it's, if it is a title that Christ has and we come under Christ, it cannot be a bad thing. If Christ is the elect or chosen of God and he refers to us as the chosen through Christ, that can't be a bad thing. So remember the characteristics of the chosen of God as we looked at the occurrences of, the, of, of where elect occurs. We saw in Luke, the fourth chapter, where Jesus refers to the widow of Zarepta being chosen over the widows of Israel and the um, leper general Naaman being chosen to be healed over all the lepers that were in the nation of Israel. We see that for the sake of God's sovereignty, the, the term elect is used. In other words, God has the right to choose to do or save whomever he will. And he's not obligated except how he obligated himself to save anybody. The only reason anybody is saved is because God obligated himself to save them. That's why it speaks of the promise being contained within God. It has no condition on man. Now this, again, this is vastly different than most of the theology that you'll hear spoken of or doctrine that you'll hear spoken about in the denominational world. And I've said before, when this country was founded, uh, 75% of the churchgoers understood fluidly these things that I'm talking to you about. So if you sit there and you go, well, I just never heard this, or I just, I don't know about this. 75% of the founding fathers, 75% of churchgoers, when this country was founded, understood fluidly these terms that could talk about them and converse about them. So if we don't understand them, it's incumbent upon us to familiarize ourselves with them. And furthermore, it's, it's all about our salvation, which is something you ought to be interested in. 
So for the sake of God's sovereignty, that's why the term elect is used. That God can choose whom He will. All right, in Luke the 18th chapter, we saw that for the ultimate avenging of God's children, God is going to avenge all of His children one day. He gave the example of the widow there who was crying out to the unjust judge. And Jesus said, shall not God avenge his own elect who cry unto him day and night? See, so God's uh, vengeance will be carried out against those who are against the elect. See, because the offense against the elect as the chosen of God, it's an offense against God. See, Uh, also Romans, the eighth chapter, we found that. For the sake of removing all charges against the elect of God, the chosen of God, that's why God has chosen. It says there can be no charges, no condemnation brought against the children of God because they are chosen, because they're elect. Christ has covered them. And then I love the what's given in Matthew 24. For the sake of the gathering together of all of the elect, it says he shall send forth his angels to the four corners of the earth and the heavens. To gather his elect. The elect will be gathered together. That's a good thing, right? (laughs) And then we saw where in 2 John, the first chapter, that John the apostle spoke of the elect lady. So not only is it the elect terminology for the chosen of God in general, the children of God in general, but it is also specifically for an individual. It says she was the elect lady. You are the elect child of God. That title applies to you, chosen of God. Now, remember God's view of his children. He views them as his chosen, as his elect. He also views them as his sheep. And he views them as his children, as I just said. And then we hear Jesus referring again and again to these chosen, to these elect, to these children as those that are given to him by the Father. So you might, if I can stretch it one step further, The elect are a gift, okay? It is literally a present that God, the Father, has presented to the Son. Okay, so these are all good things. There's nothing bad about being an elect of God. Nothing bad about being a chosen of God. And there is no such person who says, I wish I was a chosen of God. I wish I was an elect. If a person wishes they were an elect, they are an elect. See, that's the beautiful thing about it. You know, if a person desires to be a child of God, they are a chosen child of God. There's nobody that exists outside that desire. See, when they're quickened by the Spirit of God, they are made children of God and they are they are made alive in Christ. Now, the question, the next question was, how do you become one of those chosen? How do you have that desire? And it says that we are elect according or we become chosen of God, elect of God, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. The foreknowledge of God, the father. This is a big term. Now, let me tell you, it'd be hard to comprehend it fully in 10 sermons. So we're going to try in just a few minutes to comprehend the foreknowledge of God in a general way, but also in a very specific way as it applies to the elect of God. Now, think about it. How do you become one of these elect or one of these chosen or one of these sheep or one of these gifts that was given to God, that was given to the son? Well, if you're chosen, you need a chooser. If you're picked, there's got to be a picker. 
If you're preferred, there's got to be a preferer. If you're selected, there's got to be a selector, right? If you're adopted, there's got to be a parent that would adopt you, right? So these are all terms that apply to how we become the chosen of God. And I, I admit to you, this is it's a subject that's so vast that it's hard sometimes to wrap your mind around it because it deals with things that happened before the world was even formed. But let's try to take it up for just a little while because it's a, it's a lovely subject to talk about. Okay, it says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. The Greek word there for foreknowledge is the word prognosis. And you might think in terms of the word prognosis is when you go to the doctor and he gives you a prognosis. In other words, it means he is that doctor in, in that context would be saying this is what's wrong with you. <laughs> And this is what to expect. That's a prognosis. Now, God's prognosis is vastly different than, you know, the doctor or if, you're, if you've got legal troubles, you go see the lawyer and say, what's the prognosis for my case? God's prognosis is vastly different because God knows everything. He has perfect knowledge of everything. Don't ask me how to explain that. I don't understand it. I don't understand how an infinite being like that could have such incredible Knowledge, not just of what will be, but of all the possibilities that could be. You see, that the God of all possibilities, it, it should set off a little stick of dynamite in your mind and just kind of blow your mind. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, things can only happen one way. And I get that. I get that in one sense. If God said this is going to happen, there's only one way it's going to happen. But then there's also the possibilities that we have in our life. You could be a doctor. You could be a lawyer. You could be a farmer. You could be uh, this, that, or the other. You have possibilities before you. And God knows the best possibility for you. See, this is where faith comes in. We don't know what the best possibility is, but we want to seek God's will to know what the best possibility for me is. And man, what a beautiful thing. When you land on that best possibility... And you're in harmony with the will of God. But what an ugly thing when you force your will into the, pos the realm of possibilities and you're contrary to God's will. That's an ugly thing. See, God knows all the possibilities. And then somebody says, yeah, and, but it could only happen one of those possibilities, right? Well, you know, in one sense, that's right, because we're, we're tied to time. And don't ask me to explain that, but God knows the other possibilities that could occur. You know, there were several possibilities that I had laid before me years ago whenever I realized God wanted me to, the Lord wanted me to preach. You know, I could have stayed where I was in Nashville. I could have moved home. I could have moved somewhere else, a pastor to church. I'm not, I believe that I've hit upon the best possibility that God wanted. I believe God has confirmed that through the years. I still feel that today, but I could have made some other choices. See? And, and maybe God would have blessed in some of those other choices, maybe. But I don't want just to be, um, I, I want to find the best possibility that God has for me. Is that not where faith comes in? What about if you're looking for a spouse? You know, maybe there's three or four possibilities out there. This person might be good. That person might be good. The other might be good. And this, this could be a possibility. Don't you want to land on the best possibility? See, that's where the will of God comes in. That's where you lay down your will and you say, Lord, what do you have for me? What's best for me? I tell you, it's a little bit unnerving when you ask those kind of questions. It sort of tends to make you feel as though you are totally exposed before God. <laughs> There's not a little emotion or nerve anywhere within you that can be hid from Him. 
But boy, what a great thing too when you lay that down before Him and say, Lord, whatever you say, you're the God of all possibilities. You know what's best for me. That's another reason, by the way, that, that we're not what, what's known as absoluters. <laughs> and, you know, whatever will be, will be. It's, it, the Bible just doesn't teach that. You know, you can die before your time if you act like a fool. The Word of God says that. Now, now again, that sets a little stick of dynamite off in your mind and just kind of blows your mind up when you think about God that way. If you think about God, it can only happen one way and it's only going to be this way in my life. You've just limited God into a little box. I want to study for the rest of my life on this earth of the, um, in the vein of the God of all possibilities. You know, it is possible that churches can revive. It is possible that doors can open and truth can be spread. Are we asking the God of those possibilities to send forth laborers to the harvest, to open those doors, begging him for such things? Otherwise, what's the point? See? So the God of all possibilities not only foreknows things that will come to pass, but he knows all the possibilities of things that can come to pass. He knows what's best for you. The word prognosis is the word. It means to see or to know beforehand, to foresee. It can mean to foreordain. Now, I try to think about this to make it make sense to us. As a parent, okay, as a parent of five children, I had no idea. I had no prognosis of what any of my children were going to be, male, female, how they were going to look. <laughs> now, I might could get a little bit of an idea, you know, you look at, Sister Tracy, I think, well, they're certainly probably going to be handsome and beautiful. I could th- General things I could think like that. You know, I could think, well, you know, I've got some predispositions to like history or like to read. You know, maybe they'll have some predispositions in that way. I've j- joked and said, you know, I knew that none of my kids were going to be math professors. <laughs> I just knew that wasn't going to happen. So, but I had no idea about the prognosis of my children. And let me say this. I'm glad I didn't. Not, not because, well, I would have exchanged some. I don't mean that. But I'm glad I don't have the knowledge of the, of the trials and troubles and tribulations, every little thing that they would face in their lives. Because that would have caused me to lose heart. I would have looked at that and gone, do you mean that this beautiful little child that I'm going to bring into the world is going to have to suffer this or that? It would have broken my mortal heart okay under no circumstances would i if i had known any prognosis of any of my children would i say well boy i wish we had never had that one <laughs> there's no circumstance and you say well that's kind of funny brother well think about it what if the mother and father of future adolf hitler had had prognosis or foreknowledge of what that man was going to do you, you say well nobody would think that way are you kidding me you know, we've all seen the time travel movies, and I, maybe I really like those. And somebody will say, well, we're going to go back in time and we're going to assassinate Adolf Hitler, you know, as a, as a boy. <laughs> you know, make sure he doesn't come into the world. I mean, you, you know, people think about stuff like that. You know, praise God, I don't have an Adolf Hitler in my <laughs> descendants, you see. I would never exchange them. I would never... Uh, say, well, boy, I wish we hadn't had that one. No, they're precious. They're all precious to me. And I had no prognosis. You see what I'm saying? Now think about God. He knows every hair on 
every head of every child of God. He sees with perfect vision everything they'll ever go through, everything they'll ever do. I am so glad that I'm not God. I don't think I could handle that information. I don't want to see the struggles and trials of what my children will go through in the future. Maybe when I'm gone or before I'm gone. I just don't want to see that. That's information overload for me. Thank You better thank goodness that we don't know that kind of thing. But it shouldn't magnify, it shouldn't magnify the choice of God in foreknowing every wicked thing that every one of His chosen children would ever do. And not only that, making sure that every wicked thing that every one of His children would do would be sufficiently paid for by His chosen on the cross. Now, as a parent myself, if I could have looked ahead at the prognosis, you know, I, I would hope that I wouldn't have because it would have terrified me. That's why I'm not God. As a mortal man, under no circumstances would I ever undo the five children that I have. You see, I didn't know anything like what God knows. Y'all understand what I'm saying? God didn't just know the good. He knew the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he still stuck with his commitment. That's a lesson in commitment, is it not? Now let's consider the foreknowledge of God. The root word for uh, prognosis is, is found in a couple other places that I want to give to you. The, the root word for foreknowing, foreknowledge, fore, is foreknown. And it's found in Romans 8 and 29. You probably could have guessed that. Where it says of the covenant of redemption, uh, the Apostle Paul writes and he says in Romans 8, 29. Let me get the right chapter here. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So whom God foreknew, that's a people, you see. Not only does God generally know everything that happens, but in this context here, foreknowledge is specifically applied to intimately knowing people, okay? And that's the covenant of redemption. Yes, he knew generally everything that those people would do and say and think, but in a more specific way, he foreknew them in love. You see, he set his love upon them in spite of knowing them in the ways and the things that they would do. <laughs> See, I, I love my children in spite of some of the things they do, in spite of some of the shortcomings they have. Most of their shortcomings come from me. <laughs> but I love them in spite of those things. And God, who is perfect, who saw all of those shortcomings, still loves His children. That's a foreknowledge that you can plumb the depths of that for the rest of your life and through eternity exploring and in, in, in awe at that kind of love. So it says, for whom he did foreknow. Not only did God know everything in general, but he knew specifically a people intimately in love. Now, the, of course, the root of that is, it, you, you would think, well, they were just pretty good people, right? No, the root of that is found within God itself. There, are, there is no such thing as a pretty good person as a decent person when it comes to the spirituality of man. See, 
And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But Romans 8.29 says, For whom he did foreknow. Look at Romans 11 and 2. Just a couple pages over. He says, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. You know, there was some thought there going on that, well, maybe God, you know, doesn't even love any of those Israelites. And even though some of those that rejected him, the Lord, and, and Paul says, no, the Lord will never cast away a person that he has foreknown because it's found within himself. See, so you see, this word occurs not just in the context of God's general knowledge of everything, but specifically he foreknows and love his people. Now, let's speak a little more about the general knowledge of God. Psalms 139. Can't get away from this one without speaking of the general knowledge of God. And this is David writing in Psalms 139. Listen to the language. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. We're talking about foreknowledge. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compasseth my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Very important that the Lord doesn't say, I caused it. (laughs) But he says, I know what you're going to say before you even say it. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. What is David's conclusion to all of this foreknowledge of God? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high I cannot attain unto it. David says, and it's okay for you to say this too, God's comprehension is so far beyond anything that I can fully understand. That's what that psalm says. The Lord knows what I'm going to say before I say it, but He doesn't cause me to say it. You heard the old saying, you know, the devil made me do it. (laughs) Well, you know, when it comes to sin, you remember the Lord will never make you do it. But the Lord knows what you may say, what you thought. And, you know, think about how many times Jesus was standing there and somebody's over there you know, looking down their nose and their, their, their nose turned up and thinking something in their mind, something terrible in their mind. And Jesus just looks at them and says, he, he says their thoughts to them because he can read their mind. <laughs> That's a great lesson when we think that we can keep things hid from God. Nothing is hid from God. I tell you what, this also will, this will make you want to be more transparent. And I don't mean telling all your, it doesn't mean you got to tell everything you're thinking to other people, but God knows everything you're thinking, see? And a lot of times we should be ashamed of that (laughs) because some of the things we think are not godly things. But in general, God knows everything we think. He knows the word that we're going to say before we say it. Don't ask me to explain that. I can just tell you that he's, he describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the ending. He created time within. You, you understand that time and the universe and space and matter, all of that exists within the greater realm of eternity. You see, God didn't just reach over here and, and create some area in which to make the world and the earth and the universe. No, in the vast expanse of eternity, God just opened up his ability and his power and just created the universe within eternity. So we exist within eternity now. It's just within time that God created. So you see, if you could picture, as I've said many times, the line of time like a pen or if you could say my finger is the line of time and all this part around here, before it, after it, in the middle of it, everywhere, upside down, over it, under it, everywhere. That's eternity. And God's there, see? No time there. 
See, time is a creation. I tell you, it really makes man look small and nothing, which is the whole point. <laughs> so you see, God, God's not just stuck over here following along with time. God can go anywhere He wants to around this area. And I'm not talk about, talking about Him being a time traveler. He can look in on it at any point of time because He created time. So don't ask me how to explain that. I can just tell you that's the way that it is. He knows when the end is coming, see? And He's going to be over there at the end, just like He was there at the beginning. This is something that should cause us to feel humble. <laughs> David says, this is so much of an overload to my thinking that it's too high for me. And remember when I spoke to you about God of all possibilities, remember David actually asked God at one point when he was in Keilah. You remember that? David said to God, he says, will Saul come and will the people deliver me up? David wanted to know if that was a possibility. And God said, yes, Saul will come. And yes, they will deliver, the people will deliver you up and betray you to Saul. So you know what David did? He didn't like that possibility, so he left. There's no other way to explain that other than God could see the end of that possibility. And David listened to what God said, and he did what was best. He left it behind. See, don't ask me to explain that. I can just tell you that that's the kind of God that we serve. He has that kind of knowledge. And specifically, not just does he have that general knowledge of everything that happens. And by the way, you do realize he knows who's going to be the president come November. Right? Nothing shocking there to God. It may shock you. It may shock me. Nothing shocking to God. God knows who's going to be the next however many presidents we may have before he comes back or before this country is no longer in existence. God's even said that throughout time. Now, I know you're like me. You wish he would tell us from time to time. Well, who's the next one going to be? Or, you know, what's coming next? God has done that from time to time. You know, he said he gave a 14-year prognosis of the economy in the days of Joseph. That's how Egypt was to become such a powerful nation. He said, you're going to have seven years of plenty. You're going to have seven years of abject famine. And that was how Joseph was able. With that information from God, who knows everything, that's how Joseph was able to make Egypt the richest nation on the planet. God raised up Egypt, and then a few years later, a century or two later, he leveled it to the ground. <laughs> He's God. He's sovereign. <laughs> what about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel, the fourth chapter? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And Nebuchadnezzar wants to know what that dream means. Daniel interprets that dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel, the fourth chapter, it says that the interpretation of the dream was that Nebuchadnezzar was going to be leveled to the ground. He was also going to go back to power again at some point. But basically, because of Nebuchadnezzar's pride in Daniel, the fourth chapter, it says that it was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar went out and ate grass. This king... This king of the most powerful nation on the earth went out and ate grass like a cow. And his, his fingernails grew out, his hair grew out. He, he was basically a madman who lost his mind. And at the end of that period of time, when, when he was sufficiently humbled, if it was seven years, if it was seven months, whatever it may have been, I believe it was seven years. But at the end of those days, in verse 34, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes, the most powerful king on the planet at that time. And he said his understanding returned to him. And he says, I bless the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? 
When the time came for Nebuchadnezzar to go eat grass like an ox, nobody could say, Lord, what you doing? Nebuchadnezzar could not say, well, wait a minute, I want to appeal this. No. When the time came that God showed his power to this most powerful man on the planet, that most powerful man on the planet went out and ate grass like an ox. You talk about some laughter that was going on in heaven. Can y'all picture the Lord? He said, okay, guys, it's time. Nebuchadnezzar is fixing to rise to heights of arrogance that I cannot abide. <laughs> Get ready. Watch this. I'm going to snap my fingers and he's going to lose his mind. And he's going to go out there and they're going to chase him out from men because he's so crazy. And he's going to eat grass. Y'all come watch this with me. So can you picture the, the cherubim, the seraphim, and the, the, the angels and all of them gather around? And here he goes. And he's walking and he's saying, look at me. Look at what I've done. And the Lord says, boom, it's happened to you according to what I said. He goes out for seven years. And God just sits there. Seven years. We'd write somebody off by that time, wouldn't we? <laughs> We'd already had almost two elections for uh, another president during a, that seven-year period of time. And this man is out there eating grass. Everybody's written him off until God says, okay, he's humbled enough. The most powerful man on the planet is humbled enough. And then the most powerful man on the planet stands up and he blesses the name of God because he knows that he is reputed as nothing. Now, I love the way Nebuchadnezzar worded that because it says it does not say all the inhabitants of the earth are nothing. Did you notice that? It says that when it comes to the sovereignty and the power and the foreknowledge of God, that all of the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Thank goodness we are not nothing to God. And it says that he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me. And he went back into his kingdom and back. He was a changed man. Let me tell you, no more pride when it comes to Nebuchadnezzar. And that's that is the that is what we need when it comes from our view of God's foreknowledge. We need to be humbled and think about what he knows and the possibilities of all that he knows. And yet, in spite of all of that, he has loved me. He has come to me and given me life and told me I'm one of his. I belong to him. I'm one of his sheep. So specifically as we close in the last couple minutes, you see God's general foreknowledge. He knows everything. He knows our doubts. He knows our fears. He knows the encouraging ways that we think. He knows when we're thinking right and when we're thinking wrong. He knows it all. And specifically in Psalms 14, Psalm 53, and Romans 3, Notice it's, it's mentioned at least four times, uh, three times, but I believe there's enough there to believe that it's at least mentioned four times also. In Psalms 14, the God who knows everything, it says in verse 2, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see. God, that word see means to inspect. God is inspecting the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And the conclusion that God reached that he tells us here is they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. The conclusion of the matter in God's foreknowledge of all things is that there is no good man, woman, or child on the planet that would choose him, come to him, accept him, pray to him, bless his name, want him, desire him, do anything favorably towards him. That's a sad state of affairs. <laughs> So if you think about it this way, it says they are all gone aside collectively, all of mankind. There's no one that would do anything to honor God. 
in their nature. You say, well, there's people all around that honor God. God is looking at mankind without him inserting himself. See, without God in the heart of man, God has the ability to look and see what's it going to be like without me. This is a possibility that God looks at, you see. God looks at the possibility of what it would be like without his presence. And he says, there's nobody. Collectively, they're all gone aside. Now look at Psalms 53. Not only collectively as a body of people of all time have they gone aside, but in Psalm 53, he says, God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. So he didn't just look collectively at mankind and say, well, there's the people in the United States of America from 1776 until whenever that keeps going. Or there's the people of the Roman Empire for those thousand years. Or there's the people for the Byzantine Empire for those thousand years. You know, he didn't just, he did look at them collectively and said, there's none of all nations, of all tribes, of all kindreds. And then he looked, he got his little inspection microscope out and he looked individually at you and at me without him. And what was the conclusion? He says, every one of them is gone back. They are all collectively gone astray. And every single one of them individually are together become filthy. See? So he didn't just look at it collectively. He looked at it also individually. And the Apostle Paul repeats this brings it all together for even further knowledge in Romans, the third chapter, where he says, what then are we better than they, the Jews? He says, we're not better than the Jews. The Jews are not better than the Gentiles because they're all under sin. He's making the declaration that God has looked collectively and individually at mankind. And he has seen in his foreknowledge that there's no one that would come to him. There's none righteous. No, not one. It says in verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Now you go on, verse 19, he says that all the world may become guilty before God. You see, all of the world was determined to be guilty before God, all of mankind. And yet, look at what he still did. You know, that's prognosis, prognosis negative, is it not? God looks and there's nobody. And even in spite of that, God gave a positive prognosis. How? Because he set his love on a number of people out of every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation. And he said, I'm going to save them. I'm going to pay for their sins. I'm going to wash them clean. And they won't have anything that can be held against them. They won't have anybody that can make a charge against them. They won't, there won't be anyone that can say, you can't do this. You can't go to heaven. Why? Because God foreknew that they could not do it. And he knew that his son would do it. See? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God is the parent. God is the selector. God is the chooser. God is the one who makes the choice and puts the child of God into Christ. See? We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Not only does He know everything generally, but He knows specifically how you would fall short and I would fall short. And in spite of that, He made a a positive prognosis through his son your prognosis is positive because he chose to save you that's a a deep subject it's a vast subject 
And I don't presume to think that we could cover it all in one night, but I do hope that we've touched on a few things that show us just how lovely, kind, merciful, and loving God is when He's pouring on a people.